Hello, friends. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I am a licensed clinical social worker and certified addictions counselor and also certified Daring Way facilitator. Facilitator? Facilitator? What kind of word is that? And I practice in Chicago, Illinois. My practice is called Head Heart Therapy. Thank you for joining me today. Today's guest is a Brene Brown connection, and I've learned so much from my experience of not only the the training that I went through with Brene and her team, but just the connections that I've made to other people, the connections that I've made to myself, and then the clinical understanding that I've developed as a result of all of that work. I really truly can't thank that community enough. So just want to say that again. So... This interview, FYI, was recorded a long time ago. What I'm trying to do is I end up amassing a ton of recordings, and then I find that there's a theme that emerges at some point. And so you'll hear Corey reference winter, even though when this gets released, it's going to be July and it's going to be hot and you're going to be like, what is happening? Just so you know, I just wanted to give you that little tidbit so you're aware. So today I am interviewing Dr. Corey Martin. And Corey is a Yale-trained family physician driven to change the delivery of healthcare and improve the mental and physical health of our communities. He's the founder of the Bounce Back Project, a practicing private group physician and Bush Fellow and lead physician in Alinea's health response to clinical burnout. He lives in Buffalo, Minnesota with his wife and three daughters, and he says he's a recovering perfectionist and an aspiring good enoughist. And Corey, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel the same. So please enjoy my interview with Dr. Corey Martin. Hey, Corey, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Honestly, I'm crabby today. (laughs) Well, that's good. I don't know. It's good to be truthful, right? Right? I don't know what's (laughs) going on, but I worked out this morning and I was like so mad about the workout and then like just little dumb things that are happening. I'm just like furious about it. Like (laughs) it's just so dumb. It's funny how we can get into a mood like that every once in a while, right? I know. Especially, it's like totally not my style. It's not my speed. I think a lot of it is, there's been some chronic stress that I've been dealing with, and I'm just like tired of it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I get it. But you're good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's a good day. You know, it's 10 degrees outside, and Ooh. how could it get any better than this? Right? <laughs> <laughs> So I guess let's start off by letting the listeners know how we met. So it was this past year's Daring Way Midwest Conference, right? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you did a presentation. Remind me. I mean, it was basically just on the work that you're doing, which was awesome. Yeah. So I am the head of a project called the Bounce Back Project here in Buffalo, Minnesota. And we do work around physician and healthcare provider burnout resilience in our healthcare settings. And then we also do a ton of work of the same type of caliber and ideas within the community in our school systems and just for regular old people in our community as well. Mm-hmm. Regular old people. <laughs> yeah. So I probably should have asked you to start with who you are and what you do, and then we can kind of yeah. piggyback on that from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a family practice doc, and I practice in a smaller community called Buffalo, Minnesota. And so I've been doing that for many years. And over the last five or six years, really, I've found myself working in the field of physician and healthcare provider burnout and resilience and really trying to help myself out of my own Mm -hmm. burnout, as well as my colleagues and friends and people who take care of my family. 
Yeah. And now it's all coming back to me. I remember the story that you told about why you started this project. Do you mind sharing that here? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see, go back in time about 15 years. That's when I first started practice here in our community. And I came in and I was doing full scope family medicine. So I was delivering babies. I was taking Mm -hmm. care of patients in our hospital and in the clinic and really found myself about five years into practice and completely and utterly burned out. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it at the time that I was burned out, but what I did know is I was pissed off and frustrated and angry mm-hmm. every day when I came to work. And when I went home at the end of the day, I had nothing left to give to my family. Yep. And so I ended up looking for a different job and took a job, half-time job as the director of medical affairs at our hospital, which is like the head doctor for a health system. And so it makes a lot of sense to hire the most pissed off, frustrated, burned out doc, you know, to be the head of the docs. That makes a lot of right, sense. Right. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, yeah, and, and yeah. fortunately for me, um, <laughs> they, nobody else wanted the job, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I took that job about seven or eight years ago and started realizing that I was burned out and many of my mm. colleagues were. And so we started doing some work around that and trying to figure out how do we dig ourselves out of this hole and Mm -hmm. how do we make things better. And I think we started doing some really cool, interesting things. And then we had a couple really tragic things happen in our community, one of which was one of my partners and colleagues who was an obstetrician in our community, left his house one morning and told his wife, I'm going to be back in a couple hours hugged his daughter and got in his motorcycle and went out for a ride for his own personal well-being and to clear his mind. And that was the day that he got in a motorcycle accident and was mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. And so he never came home that day. And I remember getting the call that evening from my clinic president telling me that Eric had died. And mm-hmm. this was one of my good friends. And I just saw him the day before and he had delivered my twins. And mm-hmm. so This was not somebody insignificant in my life or our community. And I think it was one of those moments where it was just a punch in the gut of like, holy crap, like this could happen to any one of us at any time, right? When we leave Mm -hmm. the parking lot today and go home, it could happen. And so are we living our life the way we should? Do we feel like if today was our last day that we lived it well? And Mm -hmm. to be honest with you, the answer was hell no. Like, no, we're not. Like, this is ridiculous. We're taking work with us home for two extra hours every night or sticking around here doing that. We're the people that we all see when we go out to dinner and sit around a table somewhere like an Applebee's and all four Mm -hmm. people in the family are on their phone not talking to each other, (laughs) right? right? Right. Or, Or we're at home trying to play with our kids and we've got our phone out trying to follow up on texts and emails Mm -hmm. and keep up on this, that, and the other. And so it became very obvious to us that we all were thinking we needed to change. And so I would tell you we did, and we did for a short period of time. It's just like, you know, what will happen to me? I'll be like Nostradamus here and predict what's going to happen in January. So I'm going to say something like, I'm pretty sure this year is going to be the year I lose this 40 pounds I need to lose, right? And I'm going to go to the gym. This is going to be the year, even though I've done the same thing for the past 15. This has got to be the year. Mm -hmm. And I go and I do pretty well for the first week. And then if I were true to myself, I'd put something on my calendar on about March 1st that would say something like, hey, dummy, don't forget to uh, Hmm. cancel your gym membership because you haven't (laughs) gone for a month, right? Right. (laughs) And so we did okay for a while. And then we fell back into our old ways. And then we had a second tragedy hit us about 90 days after our first. And that was when one of our other physician colleagues and friends who is a pediatrician in our community committed suicide by hanging mm-hmm. himself in our hospital chapel. 
Yeah, I remember that night getting the call from my hospital president, my boss, asking me to hurry up and get in there because uh, Mm. of what had happened. And I was the first senior leader to walk in that hospital that night. And I remember the look on people's faces of just complete and utter devastation. Yeah. Of holy cow, what the hell just happened to here? And how are we going to get through this? And then, because I think sometimes I need a big hammer to hit me over the head. <laughs> right? It would be too easy if it were just a tiny hammer. <laughs> right. Like those two things should be enough, right? Right, for us right. To figure out how to do this. But then the next day there was a third, and that was when I walked over to our hospital to do some clinical work. And one of the things I still do clinically is I do colonoscopies. So I was walking over to do that, and I always joke with people that I still do that because when I became an administrator, I got really good at dealing with assholes, and so <laughs> that you know, so that's the part of my clinical right. That's a part of my <laughs> clinical thing that I should do too, right? Right. And so I walked over there, and as I got on the floor, the medical secretary looks at me, and she goes, "Oh, Corey, I'm so glad you're here today. Yesterday, when I had heard that a doc had killed himself mm-hmm. in the hospital chapel, I really thought I was going to hear that it was you." Mm. No, I'll tell you, I've told that story a million times and it gets me every time. Yeah, that's a smack in the face. Yeah, there's been nothing that's taken me to my knees like that comment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, that's all too real Mm -hmm. that we work around people every day. And it's the culture, at least in healthcare Mm -hmm. and in many other professions that wouldn't surprise me if, if they would take their life. And that's kind of bullshit. Right. Right. Like total bullshit. Why are we okay with that? Like that is complete Mm -hmm. bullshit. That's what started me on the journey of the Daring Way and Brene's work and Mm. and all that stuff. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've actually gotten in some good conversations on the podcast about healthcare and how doctors are trained. And I, I wish I could remember, I was listening to On Being with Krista Tippett recently, Mm -hmm. and she had a physician on there. And the woman, she teaches at some university in New York, I cannot remember, but she was saying that she teaches a course on wellness for Mm -hmm. the physician. And she's like, you know, 30 years ago, there's no way anybody would have put that in their curriculum. And still, this is like the only class in the country that's being offered. And I do tend to work actually with a lot of impaired physicians who have addiction issues and just the stories that they tell me about how impossibly grueling it is. I don't see how that's a way to train the people who are supposed to help other people be healthy. Right. It is a total indoctrination. That's for Mm -hmm. sure. And it's so many of the bad things that we are probably taught in in our society along the way is taken and really beaten into you more. The perfectionism, the shame of you're supposed to be perfect. And if you make a mistake, you're a horrible human being. And you know, mm-hmm. don't ever talk about your feelings. And if you do, you mm-hmm. can't share them with anybody at work. And so you tend to bottle all this stuff up and it builds up like a big abscess. And at some point it's mm-hmm. got to explode. Right. Well, I always think about, too, the reasons that people might want to become a doctor can end up getting skewed along the way because you don't have time for patient care. <laughs> if you're mm-hmm. adhering, I, I had one client who was a surgical resident and they remarked on how they always got in trouble for spending too much time with the patient. And we would always scratch our heads <laughs> with that right. because that's where the healing work is. Right. It's interesting because that's what most of us thought going into medicine that we would right. get to do. And it really is very little of that because it is such a time pressured profession at this point of measuring and clicking boxes and making sure you do all the right things that the right stuff really is actually taking time with your patient and caring. 
And just like in so many other professions, I mean, I, I think about teachers and right. you know, how mm-hmm. burned out teachers are and how mm-hmm. now that, you know, we're teaching towards kids passing certain tests and mm-hmm. there's certain curriculum that all the fun things that our teachers used to get to do to really get kids to engage and think in a different way. It's very cookbook, just like medicine is now, too. And so right. it's not just medicine. There's so many other professions mm-hmm. that are very similar. In my profession, there's a big push for using evidence-based practice, which on one hand, yes, obviously we want to know that the things that we're doing have been studied and generally work, but I'm sure you find this in in your profession as well, too, that there's so much of an art to it that you have to develop that intuition and that gut instinct, and that is not an evidence-based practice that can be measured by insurance that is what pisses me off. I feel like since I'm angry today, we could totally go (laughs) off about how terrible the insurance industry is. I'm honestly like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to get fixed. Mm -hmm. And it scares the shit out of me. I agree. And I I just gave a talk here last week. And my opening statement was a quote that I had found, I think by Albert Einstein, that said something like, not everything that counts can be counted. And not everything that can be counted counts. And so Mm -hmm. we're so focused on counting anything we can, but most of that stuff doesn't matter, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter to the little old grandma who comes in who just needs somebody Mm -hmm. to talk to, right? And those are the important things that we've really started getting away from in healthcare. And it burns people out, right? Right. It sounds like you've made, and I want to hear specifics about what you've done in your community, but I guess just kind of thinking more nationally as well. Do you see how there's going to be a shift? Do you have any like hypotheses of what's going to happen? I think we are early in this transformation, but it will it will come and there's going to be a big wave coming of people realizing that this is what the upstream work is to the things that we measure, the things that we measure like mm-hmm. patient experience and patient outcomes. If we are not taking care of our docs and our nurses and our frontline mm-hmm. staff, then we don't show up with a full tank of gas. And if we can't Mm -hmm. show up to work with a full tank of gas, we're not doing our best work. And that translates into patient experience and patient outcomes Mm -hmm. and the things that we are currently measuring. And so the health systems really haven't started to think about that and spend enough time, money, and resources upstream to realize how much that will matter. And so I think at some point, there will be the Mayo Clinics of the world and the Stanfords of the world that do it. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm, it will be become mm-hmm. uncomfortable mm-hmm. for organizations to not do it. And then we'll get somewhere. But that's still probably five to 10 years out, I bet. Yeah. And in the meantime, I spoke with a colleague today because she had posted something on Facebook about struggling to even sign up for her health care. And Now that middle class white people are struggling to get their health care, I figure that's what's going to start the revolution. Because, of course, many underprivileged people have had problems with health care for a really long time. But now that the middle class can't afford it, now it's going to be a crisis, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. my God, my monthly premium is like $1,800 a month for my family of five of us, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's ridiculous. And I'm lucky enough to have a pretty decent paying job, right? And so right. I still look at that and go, holy crap, because that's not great health care. That's an right. $8,000 deductible. I still have to pay the first $8,000 out of my pocket. So somebody who's working minimum wage or working kind of an entry-level job, how do they mm-hmm. make it work? They don't. I really don't know. 
we see a huge gap. I guess they call it the underinsured because we'll get folks who have a really high deductible. And so you're paying me out of pocket hundred and something dollars a session. And you're like, why do I even have health insurance? What's the point of this? And they come to us and say, I can't afford this. And the only other options really, because in a private practice, you have to make a living too. So the only other options are they go to community mental health. And so there's this wide gap that is just... It's maddening, and I want to fucking fix it. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, my God. Good luck, uh, woman. <laughs> I know. Well, on the fixing end, I'd really love to hear some details about what you've done in your community and hopes that it can inspire other people to make changes in their own space. Yeah. So our Bounce Back project that we started, it kind of has two different arms to it. And I'd alluded to the healthcare arm initially, and so that continues to percolate along for us. And we just got done putting on a healthcare conference for 350 healthcare providers here in in the Minneapolis area. And so well received, really engaged, like it is, it is what people are hungry for. Yeah, I speak at a lot of different conferences. And a lot of times the worst time to speak is the last one of the day, right? Because (laughs) we've all been at a conference, right? You're you're, Mm -hmm. you're getting your stuff ready. You're like, I want to get out of here. I'm hungry. I want to get to the airport early, whatever that is, right? And so Mm -hmm. by the time the last speaker comes around, there's half the people there that were there at the beginning. And Mm -hmm. at this conference, there were like maybe five people out of 350 people that left. And so, and they were there to the end. So this is, you know, it's speaking to people for something that they want they're really starting to engage. And so that makes me happy. The other arm that I think is the most fun, interesting part of this is what we get to do with what I call real life, normal human beings. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's our community work. And so we've really tried to embed this work in our entire community. Buffalo is about 15,000 people in the center of Minnesota. So we've engaged different professions. So I did, for example, some kind of intense deep dives into Brene's work with a group of people who were made up of social services, the business leaders in our community, healthcare providers in the community, and teachers and educators in the community. Mm -hmm. And so we dove deep into this to give this group of leaders in our community an idea of what this work is and how it could really help them in whatever profession they had. And so that was the start of it. And then it really kind of blossomed and it went into the school district like wildfire. And so we've since then trained many of our high school teachers have gone through the Daring Way program curriculum with me. So then they take that back and they take a little tidbit here and there and they incorporate it into their curriculum. It went into our alternative high school, which is Mm. really where it started in our community. And Hmm. we had one teacher who was so intent on this work and, and really dug into it. And she incorporated it into her curriculum for the entire semester. And Hmm. those kids read Daring Greatly. They did projects along the way. Their final project for the year was to write Brene a letter telling her what it meant to them to read this book and what they learned. And when the teacher sent these to me, she said, you know, can you get these to Brene and and sent me an email with all these in with everybody's name taken out. And Mm -hmm. I started reading these letters and I had to get up and close the door to my office because I was just weeping. Weeping. That's the word that came to me too, I bet. Oh my gosh. And it would be stories like, 
I didn't realize how much this book would affect me. And I don't think you probably wrote it for teenagers, but I'll tell Mm. you that the shame really spoke to me because Mm -hmm. my mom and I left my dad two years ago and two weeks after we left, he committed suicide. And I've carried that shame with me the entire last two years. And my mom's now a meth addict and I don't get to see her. So I have that shame in me. And what I've realized Mm. is that I've got a long ways to go but maybe that stuff isn't mine to carry. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, holy crap, like this is a 17-year-old kid who has 60 years of life under their belt already and 60 years of pain. And wow, like to have that kind of insight when you're that age is amazing. And and so you'd get story after story that look like that in these kids in our alternative high school. And Mm -hmm. so it really blossomed out of there. And there was a small group of three or four of these kids who went and presented to our high school principal and assistant principals what they talked about and did in this class. And that's where it started in our high school. And so that's how we started training our high school teachers and how they started incorporating into their curricula. And now the students in the high school, they have all kinds of different things that they do throughout the year. One of them coming up after the first of the year is called Rave Week. And that Hmm. stands for Respect and Value Everyone. And so that week is really focused on things like Make Account Tuesday and and Wellness Wednesday and all these different things that they have brought back and connected with Brene's work through Gifts of Imperfection or Daring Way or Mm -hmm. Rising Strong. And so even how this has played out in the school is one of our assistant principals last year at Rave Week, they had a full school lyceum, I think is what we used to call them anyway. I don't know what they call them now, but Mm -hmm. it was where everybody, all the kids in the school get together Mm -hmm. for half an hour. And he got up there on stage and talked about his 25-year battle with depression and what it's meant to him and how hard it's been. And so this is not just an assistant principal. This is the guy who Mm. 10 years ago took this team to win the state championship basketball Mm. game, right? And so he's like the big, cool coach in town. And he's getting up there talking about his own battle with depression and how it's okay to talk about this. And that's what we do around here is we talk about it and we make it okay, right? And so Mm -hmm. this kind of work has been really amazing, not only in healthcare. I mean, I think it's been amazing for us. But boy, I tell you what, I get so excited when I talk about the stuff that's going on in our schools and our community. And so Mm -hmm. we just earlier in the year, we had a community-wide book read as well here. We read, the community read Gifts of Imperfection. And so we did a kickoff in our Performing Arts Center. And so I gave a talk that night on the five most common regrets of the dying. And Hmm. we kicked off the book read and we had 500 and some people at that first event. And then we ended up having about 1,200 people in our community engaged in the community book read with about 60 different small groups going on at the same time where people would Hmm. get together with their neighbors and discuss the book. And finally, a couple months later, we had a final celebration and brought people back together, had another larger presentation and kind of ice cream social and and made it a fun day for the community back together Mm -hmm. at our school. So lots of cool stuff. Yeah. What I'm hearing is essentially kind of leading by example is that it sounds like you've really gotten people at the top, you know, the physicians, I think, being one tier of that and setting the example by sharing vulnerability and sharing about their mental health struggles and whatnot. And then the teachers and the principal and 
I've been talking with a friend about how do we continue to promote a culture of abundance and building each other up rather than living from fear. And it always comes back to shame at the end of the day, always. Absolutely. You hit it right on the head is that it's about people who can go out there and model it for others. And when Mm -hmm. you can get the principal and a doc to do it and you can get males in the community to do it, that's pretty cool. And one of the things with our our final event after our book read was over with is we, I don't know what it's called, but we had people walk from the back of the auditorium all the way up to the front with a card in front of them. And Mm. so like one of them, one of my friends who's a county commissioner, she walked up there and she's like, Carla Heater, county commissioner is what the white card said in front of Mm -hmm. her. And then she flipped it over and it said, have always struggled with being enough. Mm. We recruited 20 of our leaders in our community that everybody would be like, oh yeah, I know him. He's the chief of police and I know her. She's the county commissioner to do that. And again, it was how do we lead this stuff by showing people that we're all a little fucked up, right? Right. That's what I always say. (laughs) Everybody's fucked up. (laughs) We're all a little fucked up and and some of us actually know it, right? (laughs) Right. Well, that, I mean, that's the other challenge. And that's something that I would really like to get in and study is denial. What Mm -hmm. separates the people who do the work from the people who, for whatever reason, have too much fear that gets in the way. Right. This work all comes down to courage, right? It all comes down Mm -hmm, to courage to mm -hmm. be vulnerable, to talk about what's underneath your mask. And sometimes it takes a lot of other people to show you the way before you're even going to stick your toe in the water. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is a really good segue into the healer conversation because, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about all of these things that you're doing, even though this isn't clinical work, what you're doing is healing your community. Do you consider yourself a healer? I do. And Mm. I would say that I think if you ask many docs, they would probably say that they consider themselves a healer, right? But I consider that in a much different way. And so I don't do a whole lot of clinical work anymore. And so the way I heal people is actually most of my job is about taking care of people in healthcare so that they can do a better job of taking care Mm -hmm. of their patients, right? So healing the healer really is what I view my job as is that how do you get people to realize taking care of themselves is so important so that they can take care of other people. And Mm -hmm. that's the one thing that most people forget and and is really the hardest thing to do. It's really easy to take care of other people. It's really hard to take care of yourself and to put yourself first and not let the story go in your your brain of, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'm being lazy. I shouldn't do that because somebody else needs it worse than I do. Those societal norms and the things that we tell ourselves are really not true. But mm-hmm. that's that tape that goes on in our head. Yeah. I spend a lot of time talking about self-compassion with people because I feel like it's actually such a small piece of the daring way, but I found it more impactful than empathy for people who struggle with chronic shame, right? Because if your voice is the one that you hear most often, that's going to be what's most impactful. And one time when, when I was running a group and we were talking about it, somebody was like, the golden rule really shouldn't be do unto others as you would do unto yourself. It really should be do unto yourself as you would do unto others. And I was like... Mic drop. You're so right. Because <laughs> it's just so much easier to care for somebody else because right. they deserve it more than we do. Gosh, I think I saw this when I was at a conference, maybe out in California at Stanford, but it was Kelly McGonigal actually that was talking about it. And I loved how she put together her idea around compassion in general and self-compassion. Mm. And she had said that compassion is really made up of four different components. 
So there's giving compassion, there's receiving compassion, there's compassion for others and witnessing compassion Ah, and how all of those come together to fill your compassion bucket. And so Mm -hmm. while many of us find self-compassion so hard, she said, well, why not look at the other parts of the compassion bucket and see how we can get better at those And when we get a little bit better at those, maybe higher water floats all boats and maybe it makes it easier Mm -hmm. for us to be more self-compassionate if we say, okay, I'm going to be more present today and witness compassion going on around me. Maybe that's a step I can take today. Mm -hmm. And then maybe next month I'm going to get better at receiving compassion because for the most Mm -hmm. part, we all suck at that too, right? Right. It's, It's easy to give compassion, but when somebody tries to give it to you, it's hard to receive, like even a compliment, right? Yes. So when, when <laughs> we get I was a com- thinking. I know, like when we get a compliment, yeah. I, the other day I got a haircut and I come into work and somebody goes, oh, you got a haircut, it looks nice, you know, so what's the reflex thing that comes mm-hmm. out, out of my mouth as well, you know, they had a thing of great clips and it was seven ninety nine. Right, so, right, you know, yeah. I had to get a haircut, and, <laughs> like you totally negate it. And so uh-huh. how do we, how do we even get better at just saying, you know what, thanks for noticing, I really appreciate that, and then mm-hmm. buttoning our lips shut. So I found when she talked about that, that was really helpful to me because self-compassion really does seem really hard to me. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, maybe I can do the witnessing thing and be more present and maybe I can get better at receiving. And then maybe that is kind of a step into getting better at self-compassion too. And so I found that to be helpful for me as a way just to not look at it and go, oh my God, where the hell do I even start? Right. Well, and I want to piggyback on what you're talking about, about accepting compliments. And what I've found is that there's a fear of being perceived as full of yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, And I think that goes, again, kind of back to scarcity and judgment. And it's really funny, like, that's one of the things I'm trying to do is just accept compliments and like, really like take it in and let myself feel it. But it's funny. So my husband will say like, oh, you're the best wife ever. And I'll say, I know. <laughs> but then he like shoots back at me and is like, well, somebody's full of themselves today. But and, and we're he and I are obviously like joking about all of this stuff. But why is it bad to say, I know I'm the best wife ever for you? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I am not completely full of myself and have this ego that's going to float away. I'm just letting myself be grateful that my husband is grateful for me. Right. Another way to even frame that is when other people give us compliments and pay us respect and and be empathetic and compassionate with us, and we negate that by saying, oh, no, you shouldn't. This is just my job or this is just the way it is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make them feel good either, right? Right, because you're smacking it away. (laughs) Right. So if we want to reframe it, like if we're so bad at self-compassion that we can't keep it and take it, then let's just reframe it and say, well... Who am Mm -hmm. I to take that away from them? They're giving me a compliment and I know that makes them feel good. And so who am I to take that away from them? And so maybe if we have to reframe it, at least initially as that, maybe that's the way we can do it. I don't know. Yeah, that's often something that I tell people because that that was an experience I had with my husband, too, where he one time said I looked nice and I was like, oh, whatever. (laughs) He literally said, it really hurts my feelings when you don't accept my compliments. And I was like... Touche, friend. Okay, Uh then. (laughs) Damn it. How does what I say get turned around and used against me, right? I know. I'm the one who's always right. God damn it. Well, let's shift into the wounded healer question. Yeah. How does that term sit with you? I think it's right on in many of the instances, especially in myself and so many of the people around me, is that as I look at going through my training and 
the things that were done to me to become a physician. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of wounding that went through that. And then there was a lot of bad habits that were taught. So I've spent the last five years of my life trying to unwind that and trying Mm -hmm. to take myself and realize that I am a wounded healer. And Mm -hmm. how do I work on that for myself and those around me? Absolutely. And I guess I'm just thinking about young doctors who are in training right now. And if you had any advice for them, what would you say? Well, get I out! Say, <laughs> like, how could I say that in a nice right? way? No, I'm right. just kidding. Get out with your lives! <laughs> it's interesting because I was just having this conversation a couple of days ago with a surgeon friend of mine, and we were talking about how training just needs to change. And then we reflected on when we were there and what we were thinking about. And in reality, when you're in medical school and your residency specialty program trying to learn things, the first and foremost thing in your mind is, oh my God, there's so much stuff to know. How can I know it all? I don't, I feel like I don't know anything. I'm such an idiot. Like I need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. God, people must know that I'm an imposter, right? Right. And back to shame. (laughs) Yeah, back to shame again. And so you spend your whole time trying to figure out the medicine aspect of what your hope is, is to just not kill anybody, right? Right. And so you're so focused on that and there's so much to learn that the whole idea of taking care of yourself and self-compassion is out the window. And first of all, it's really not taught Mm -hmm. in medical school or residency or in healthcare a whole lot in training. And I think even if it was, I think the mindset that we are at that time, we're just not even open to it. I think back to my training and I didn't have another physician who would model it for me. I know of no physicians that I trained with that could have modeled taking care of themselves and the importance Mm. of time to do that. And so who they brought in was, well, bring in the social worker, bring in the psychologist (laughs) to tell us, right? And so... Uh And they never listen to us. (laughs) Right. Which which the message was exactly what we wanted to hear, Mm, which we should have wanted to hear, but we weren't ready for it. And for some reason at that point in my life, I would have needed somebody that had an MD behind it to tell it to me, right? Because I would have felt like, well, how could the psychologist or the social worker even know what I'm going through? right? Which is total bullshit, but that's the mindset that they're in. And so Mm -hmm. it's just an interesting conundrum. And as I am working through my own wounded healer stuff and working with so many other wounded healers on this, I say, you know, one of the first things for us to do to dig ourselves out of this is to be the person we needed for somebody else. So that person you needed 20 years ago, how can you be that for somebody else, right? Because that's how we make this different and change and be better. And that's one of the reasons that I teach social work master's level students, because I want them, same thing that you said about medical resident students, there's this thing, you got to learn it all and you have to know everything. And I keep telling them, you're not going to know anything when you graduate. And that's normal. (laughs) Right, right. And give yourself a break. Just know that the knowledge is being absorbed. As long as you're doing a fair effort to complete your assignments and read the books and do that sort of thing, you're doing everything you can give yourself a break internally and just trust that you're going to become the therapist that you want to be over time. And same with doctors. There's no substitute for clinical experience. And that just takes time. Absolutely. Right on. Thank you. Well, and the other thing that I'm hearing that needs to happen before training can really change is a cultural shift where we shift the values that we're holding 
most highly. And right now it's success, I feel like, in this country. Oh, absolutely. And that's it's money and power and success. Right. right? And that's fucking yeah. everything up. That's not what makes us happy. That's what makes people kill themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure that you've heard this or read it, but gosh, I don't know where it came out. I read it peripherally the other day of how the life expectancy in the U.S. for the first time ever has gone down. Oh, shit. Are you serious? Because of elevated wow. numbers of suicides. Right. And drug problems. So if we talk about opioids numbing everything and mm -hmm. we talk about suicides, well, if you can't numb it, then yep. that's the other option, right? And so right. the first time ever that the uh, life expectancy went wow. down in the United States was this year because of those two things. And I mean, it's so obvious to you and me that that's such a wake up call for a cultural shift, but kind of kind of like you talked about earlier, it had to be personal for you in right. order for you to create that change. And I'm just like always racking my brain to figure out how do we make this for everybody? Because we know we're all interconnected and what hurts one person hurts the totality of us. But if you're blind to that and you're in denial and you're not connected with your body and all these things, you're not going to be open to it. Mm -hmm. Well, it is so true. And unfortunately, I think the fact of the matter is, is that for it to have a lot of focus on and resources and things put into it, it's some high profile person yeah. who has to go through a lot of trauma and tragedy mm -hmm. who can help to push to get things done until that happens to some senators or yeah. representatives or the president, so somebody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just like school shootings, right? So like yeah, how many right. freaking more do we need? Like, and, mm -hmm. and when do we actually do something about it? Well, it probably isn't until some big high profile people lose their kids. Like, and that's freaking ridiculous. Right. But unfortunately that kind of is the way it seems like it works. Right. Right. God. I know. Oh, well, I'm thinking we should try to end on a happy note. Um, <laughs> instead of yeah, being like maybe, huh? school shooting, oh. suicide. Okay, bye. Well, um, have a nice day, everybody. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but I just hear so much hope from the work that you do. And I find it really difficult in a really big place like Chicago to make the big changes that I want to make. But when I step back and look at I've created a couple different communities of people who are really loving and caring and supporting for each other. And I think that's the best way we can do it, right, is to just try right. to lead by example, to try to walk the walk and hope that the majority of people will follow at some point and, and walk their own walk. Yeah, absolutely. If each one of us can save one other person's life, that's a pretty damn cool yeah. thing to do in your life, right? And yeah. that is probably not that hard to do, right? By yeah. by living in our values and mm -hmm. living consistent with our integrity and trying to just be the person we needed to have in our life five years ago or 20 years ago. And that makes a huge difference, right? And so yeah. that's the part that we need to remember all the time is that we make a huge difference every day and what we do and when we're consistent in living in our own values and our own integrity and being who we are and throwing out an F-bomb here and there because that's who I am. Right. That allows other people then to swear as much as me. And I think that's really fucking cool, you know? Right. And so I, that'll probably save somebody's life, I think. I think so, too. Cussing helps everyone. They do say that people who cuss tend to generally be smarter as well, so. Right. And more trustworthy. Right. And 
There was something I just saw on Facebook not too long ago that said your best friend should be somebody who, who cusses a lot. And so I, of course, posted on mine and said, well, who wants to be friends with who me? Who wants huh? to be my BFF? Right. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure to share with listeners? No, I think we talked about some really good stuff. And we were we were a little mm-hmm. bit here and there. But, boy, the consistent thread is... Be who you are and stand up for what yeah. matters and take care of yourself. And when we all do that together, big things can happen and we we can actually change this world. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. This is awesome. Yay. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Corey Martin. Wasn't that awesome? For more information about Corey, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Leo Modano for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Come hang out with me on Instagram sometime, or Facebook, or I guess Twitter. I don't really do Twitter that much, so if you hang out there, I might not respond for a while, to be honest. But (laughs) thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye.